0: Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth. Brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Our guest today is Dr. Cody Friesen, the founder and CEO of Source Global a sustainability-focused startup that is working to help solve the planet's drinking water scarcity issues. The company's flagship product is the Source HydroPanel, a solar-powered, self-contained piece of technology that turns the plentiful water vapor in the atmosphere into a clean, renewable water supply. Source Global has done both commercial and residential projects with its hydro panels in more than 50 countries worldwide and expects to produce and sell tens of thousands of them this year, increasing to a few hundred thousand in 2024. Friesen, an MIT-educated material scientist and professor at Arizona State University, already had experience translating academic research into a commercial entity, having previously founded Nant Energy, formerly Fluidic Energy, an advanced rechargeable battery company that fuels many remote grids worldwide. Since originally founding Source Global in 2015, Friesen has raised close to $300 million in founding. As a public benefit corporation, or PBC, Source Global is focused on both shareholders and stakeholders broadly defined. Friesen sees no tension between mission and money and hopes to help foster what he calls conscious capitalism as he pursues his company's ambitious goal of making drinking water an unlimited resource. So let's get to our conversation with Cody Friesen of Source Global. Welcome to the podcast, Cody. Thanks so much for joining us today. Excited to be on. Source aims to target one of humanity's most pressing and essential challenges, water scarcity. What inspired you to tackle this particular global problem? I've been in the renewable energy space for
1: the last couple decades. I think most people who are in this space were attracted because of the scale of the problem. The challenges are only getting worse with time. And yet on the other side, when we're solving for renewable electricity with solar PV, wind, and energy storage, the solutions are industrial in scale. So one of the things that was very attractive about, what I would argue is humanity's greatest problem in drinking water, is that it is global in scope, but human in scale. And a solution that taps to what renewable energy does, which enables electricity to be distributed, infrastructure-free, and leverages, in the case of solar, the free feedstock of sunlight. If we could get those same features into a drinking water solution, we would then have a technology that is potentially globally ubiquitous, that was the reason why I became attracted to the problem and uh, thought we could contribute something to it.
0: Talk about the source Hydro panel, your product, and how it creates a sustainable water source. You alluded to it, but give us a little more detail on how it works. I'll start
1: with what everybody's very familiar with. If you put a uh, pot of water on the stove, turn on the heat, and you start to boil that water, that turns into vapor, so the liquid becomes a gas and then distributes into the kitchen. In the troposphere, the lower part of the atmosphere that we live in, there are one and then 16 zeros, big number, uh, kilograms of water vapor in the air. It's about six times all of Earth's rivers at any given time. And the average water molecule stays in the atmosphere for about a week. So you're talking about a massive renewable resource, an atmospheric ocean of water vapor that we live within. The question then becomes is there a way to very efficiently take those? water molecules that are in the vapor form and turn them into liquid anywhere on the planet. We all have familiarity with a glass of iced tea where you get condensation on the outside and liquid water is dripping down in humid places. We also have a familiarity with when you leave the lid off of a sugar bowl and that sugar starts to get clumpy. The water vapor is getting absorbed into the sugar. We developed a set of engineered materials that do that same process just many hundreds of times faster and concentrate the water vapor by about 10,000 times by volume. We take those materials that have been exposed to atmosphere and absorb water vapor passively, and we expose them to sunlight in order to aspire that water vapor back out in a concentrated stream. So we get condensation in a passive way. In that way, we were distilling the atmosphere to make liquid water. The layers of sophistication below that make source hydropanels very efficient the way that we engineer those materials, there's a a lot of intellectual property behind that. That's enabled us to deploy source hydropanels in over 50 countries around the world across a really wide range of applications. Another thing I point out is that when we think about fresh water, we're typically thinking about large volumes of water coming through pipes and infrastructure that is to serve all of our needs. The places where that infrastructure works well, that's fantastic. But it also turns out that over 2.4 billion people on the planet, about a third of humanity, don't have safe access to water at home. The real number for anybody who's spent time in many of the major cities in the world is much higher than that, maybe as much as 40 or 50% of the human population. So the question becomes, how do we solve for drinking water in a way that eliminates all of the challenges? One person dies from waterborne illness on this planet every 10 seconds. 200 million hours will be spent today, fetching water by women and girls. There's still 1.5 million miles of lead pipe in the ground in the United States. There's 750 water main breaks a day in the United States. The list of statistics goes on. This is not a solved problem by any stretch of the imagination. And it is only the places that it does work well that prove the challenges of the places that it doesn't.
0: How big a deployment of your product does it take to produce enough water for a village of a certain size. A
1: typical home, uh, you'd be looking at anywhere from two to four hydro panels, provide all the drinking and cooking water depending on the number of people in that home. So when you go to a village level, for example, the Warm Springs tribe in Oregon, it's a tribe of about 5,000 people, and we have an 800-panel array that provides all the drinking water for that community. If you think about the size of a typical PV array on a home, we're talking about a much smaller footprint than that. And again, we're focused on that drinking water component. Uh, the most important water in your life is the water that you put in your body. And yep. um, when we think about the challenges with water, they're sort of divergent. One is whether or not it rained this year and whether or not we're going to have enough water to water all the lawns in Los Angeles. That's a very different problem. And I would argue less important than you know, whether or not we have safe water for the people who are living in Los Angeles.
0: The product is not weather dependent.
1: It is weather dependent in the sense that in places where you get a hard freeze, not only uh, is there no liquid water to be moving, but it also turns out that the total amount of water vapor in the air has gone down dramatically. So we don't function in hard freeze, but outside of that, even in the dry desert, we function. Plus or minus 35 to 40 degrees north and south of the equator is a sweet spot.
0: You have an entrepreneurial and an academic background as a professor talk about the journey going from the academic world to the startup world and how you have succeeded in converting lab innovation and research into a successful startup I'm a material scientist material science is a combination of physics
1: chemistry and mechanical engineering so it's a hybrid of those three disciplines I'm specifically a physical electrochemist and a surface scientist I did my PhD at MIT. In that PhD, I worked on both quantum mechanical calculations of catalysis and on the mechanics of thin films. When I graduated from grad school, I became a professor at Arizona State University in the material science department. The reason why I moved to ASU as a faculty member is because at that time in 2004, they were starting to articulate a vision for academia that was about translational research. When I came on, I was thinking about uh, hydrogen economy version one, right now we're on version two or three. So thinking about a lot of different pieces of the renewable energy space. If you want to distill academia down to its most core features, it's really about two things, the creation of new knowledge and the transfer of that knowledge. But in translational research, you're really thinking about saying we're going to go from the lab bench all the way to solutions that solve major problems in the world. I saw ASU as an opportunity to build an academic career around big problems in the world. Could we go do basic and applied research that we can then translate into solutions that we scale and bring to the field? Getting to step onto that platform and be able to go work on really hard problems from energy storage to ammonia synthesis to uh, drinking water solutions. It's been probably
0: the greatest gift in my life. You mentioned battery technology. That was the focus of your previous venture. Can you talk about any lessons you learned from your first entrepreneurial venture that have been very valuable for your current one and also how your shift in focus from battery technology to sustainable water evolved?
1: For the last 15 or 20 years as a society, we've been at the game of working on mitigation strategies for climate change. In the earlier part of my career, when I was working on the battery problems, I was thinking a lot about mitigation. By the time we got to the early 2010s, it was pretty clear that the next decade, so the time we got to now, 2023, the core constraint was no longer going to be mitigation from a technology and science perspective, that that would largely be solved and it'd be about deployment at scale. But we were going to need a lot more bandwidth, a lot more of our brain trust around adaptation and resiliency strategies, because no matter how fast we move, we're still going to be behind the curve in terms of climate change. And that means that a an unfortunately large number of people on the planet are going to be impacted. In those early days, thinking about the limitations of lithium ion batteries, the question was, could you store energy at a far lower cost, you know, let's say 100x lower. If you pull up the periodic table, the best options are transition metals like zinc and iron and other transition metals against oxygen molecules that are in the atmosphere. It turned out that zinc air batteries have existed since 1917. You can still go into a Walmart today and buy zinc air hearing aid batteries that you pull the tab off of and they are much higher energy density and lower cost than a lithium ion battery but they're what are called primary batteries, meaning not rechargeable. Mm -hmm. So all of our research and patents around uh, zinc air batteries related to making them rechargeable. In the lab and then eventually in fluidic energy, we developed the world's first high-cycle life rechargeable metal air batteries and deployed that in nine countries at that time. That capability was about 25X or so lower cost than lithium-ion at that time. A lesson learned there is that Everybody knows that solar's gotten about a factor of 15 or so cheaper over the last dozen years because it's been on a compounding 28% cost performance curve. Well, lithium ion batteries have been on about a 22% curve. So of course, lithium ion has a lot of legs still in terms of continued cost. You'll see it as a dominant source of energy storage into the future. So the big win was thinking very differently about energy storage to solve a problem that was ahead of the curve of what Lithium-Ion was going to do. you know. Many of the other learnings really came around. How do you construct a cap table? How do you construct a board? How do you construct a culture within the company and at the board that is all about solving big problems and staying focused on building not just a valuable company, sources a valuable company, but we're building a generationally important company because of what we're doing in the world, the scale that we're doing in the world, and the way that we're approaching the problem. And that's why we've attracted such a broad set of investors at source. The bar is very high for additional investors because of that dynamic of working on a problem that is
0: very, very difficult. You guys are a public benefit corporation, which is a different sort of organizational structure for a private sector company. Can you talk about how it impacts how you run the company? We've always worked to
1: build a curated cap table of investors that are highly values aligned to what we're trying to do. Becoming a PBC, a public benefit corporation, it wasn't like there was a big hurdle from how we were already running the company to how we wanted to run the company into the future. Fundamentally, our charter, the purpose of the company states that we're going to look out for our shareholders, but also look out for all stakeholders. and perform a public benefit. In this particular case, it's about solving drinking water for people. Capitalism is an imperfect system, but it's the best system we have. How do we make capitalism conscious capitalism? How do we recognize all stakeholders when we're building companies so that um, we don't avoid all the externalities that come along with building any kind of business solution, but rather incorporate those externalities in a rational way? for
0: us, that's what becoming a PBC was about. Once you knew you had hydropanels, we're gonna be able to do what you intended them to do. How did you think about commercializing and getting it out in the market and then trying to scale it?
1: One of the things that we recognized early on is that we were talking about a dramatic paradigm shift in the way that we and others think about water. Water has always been a natural resource It's in the pipe that comes to your home or it isn't, or the pipe doesn't exist. We don't start from there. Where we start is we've made distilled water any place on the planet, and now we're going to upgrade it with some minerals to make it potable water, and we're going to keep it sterile with an ozonation technique. So we have a very different starting point. That starting point enables us to have a non-customized solution. So in other words, a single SKU, a single device can be shipped anywhere on the planet and function as well in Kenya, as it does in Malaysia, as it does in Chennai, India, as it does in Scottsdale, Arizona. It also means that with any potential user of the product, any government, business, or uh, homeowner, we have to start and move at the speed of trust. We closed the Series A in May of 2015. And in July of 2015, rather than going out and trying to sell the product very broadly. The first thing we did is we installed at eight sites in the country of Jordan. Then we flew directly to Guayaquil, Ecuador and installed at 10 sites in, in that part of Ecuador. And of course we had our early product in Arizona. So with the ultimate minimum viability product, we had our technology on three separate continents and we were taking data. That data was both for us to learn very rapidly about how to make our product more robust and more productive, but also to build trust with communities that have severe water stress. For example, with the Navajo Nation, which is the largest indigenous land space in the United States, same size of reservation as the state of West Virginia with 154,000 Navajo and 55,000 of them have no water. We've done multiple projects with them working to provide water solutions for people that that otherwise driving long distances to go acquire water. The go-to-market strategy was, has always been built around paradigm shift, evidencing, moving at the speed of trust, and then working with communities in a way that allows us to uh, engage with leadership and have the solution be theirs. We are just a technology provider to their solution.
0: When you talk about communities, I assume that a fair amount of this work is working with governments, whether it's local, regional, international, how challenging is that to navigate, especially when you're working in different countries? We have
1: government customers, multilateral customers, and then corporate customers. In all three cases, but in particular with governments, we have to do a lot of evidencing work along the path to providing those solutions. At the same time, governments are the ones that are feeling the pain of not being able to provide solutions for their citizens. It's not necessarily because of a lack of trying. It's not because of lack of money. Water is a very hard problem in the historical framing, right? It has four major issues. It's the stuff of life. So we need it, but so do pathogens. Stuff grows in it very rapidly. So keeping it potable and sterile is often challenging Uh, in infrastructure that may not be functioning the way it's supposed to. It is the universal solvent, meaning it dissolves calcium and magnesium and all the things we need, but it also dissolves lead and mercury and arsenic. So depending on what ground it comes out of, depending on what pollutants are there, it may be picking those up in a way that is difficult to keep clean in aging or failing infrastructure. Third, it's locally finite. Did it rain? Did it not? Have we consumed the resource? Who owns the resource? What are the water rights around that resource? That is massively sticky issue in the Western part of the United States. And fourth, it's a liquid. It melts, it evaporates, it freezes, it cracks pipes, it leaks, all those challenges associated with it being heavy and wet, hard to move around. So, all four of those have to be solved to provide a step forward in water. So, when we engage with governments, we're able to articulate how all four of those are solved by source hydro panels for drinking water and do that in a way that they can see around the corner of the challenges that they've often had for decades old incumbents.
0: What are the toughest questions or initial skepticism you encounter? I'm sure it differs all over the world. We get exposed to appropriate levels of
1: skepticism with every (laughs) customer engagement because what we're talking about is solving a problem that they have not been able to solve previously. The thinking around water is always around bulk infrastructure thinking. That's appropriate in many places and often the right answer. But in many places, there's no way to cross that transom to create infrastructure when there's not the water resource to begin with. So, appropriate skepticism is a great starting point because then what we do is we move to providing the proof points in real time in a way that evidences that, in fact, we uh, lift people up with this technology and solve the core problem. In the marketplace, it's actually been going really well from the point of view of interfacing with people who are uh, responsible for providing safe water to residents and enabling them to do so with
0: source. When you talk about bulk infrastructure and introducing something like the hydro panel, is the idea to have panels as close to uh, population centers as possible so there's the um, least amount of of new infrastructure that has to be there to transport water to the final destination?
1: I guess the two ways to think about this is imagine a small array at a home. Obviously there's no new infrastructure there. That's how we've worked with the Navajo. Every home gets a, a small array of hydro panels. You could also imagine that there are developers in the West and in other parts of the world that own large tracts of land, but do not have water rights. So they can't build homes on those sites. In that scenario, you can imagine a community solar type approach of source hydro panels, where it's a small array for thousands of homes that we then are plumbing to. There, you start talking about all house water and being able to do that in a way that is in the money now. When we think about the cost performance of solar and the same thing for lithium ion batteries, source is on a very similar learning curve where our cost performance is making gains every year, such that we think in seven years, the cost per liter of water will be similar, if not lower, than what you pay at your home to flush your toilet with potable water in the United States. Think about what that means for distributed water infrastructure in the future, alongside with water savings, digital water, water reuse, and some other things that make for better efficiency you can start to see a, a package of solutions that come together to get us out of this challenge of, are we gonna have enough water in this city because is there enough snowpack this year? Or did it rain the last season? Here we are with all these other areas of technological advancement in our society, and yet we still wait for it to rain to know whether or not we're gonna have the
0: water we need to run our society. In terms of Source's business model, briefly speaking, how exactly does that work? Is it a single revenue model in terms of purchasing hydro panels? And how do you work to make the product affordable enough that you can fulfill your long-term mission? Still, there's also a profit factor in there too. So can you just give me a sense of, of how the business model works in that context?
1: We basically have two business models. One is selling hydro panels along with a service warranty, water as a service under the form of what we refer to as WPA contracts. So just like a solar power purchase agreement, we sell water purchase agreements. Those are long dated contracts to deliver water at some volume, uh, at some cost. About 75% of our business is WPA, about 25% is uh, the selling of panels. Both of those are positive feedback loops for how do we get to scaled commodity level cost structure for source rather than early scale-up business uh, cost structure. For example, the amount of steel that's in a source header panel, it's about $30 of steel. And yet today our conversion cost is 10X that. When you're making not tens of thousands of panels, but many millions of panels, you go from 30 times 10 to 30 plus a few percent for that conversion. Those inefficiencies that come from early growth stages of any technology, Moving into commodity scale conversion, that's how we know what the cost structure will be. And it doesn't require new physics or what I refer to as the invention of unobtainium. It is a a fascinating exercise building source of we do an installation with a community. We improve their lives immediately. And at the same time, we know that the more of those we do, the more of those communities we can serve because our cost structure continues to reduce. That geometric response is one that ultimately will enable us to be a ubiquitous solution provider around the world.
0: How many hydro panels are you making these days on an annual basis? If you want to get to millions, or maybe one day tens of millions, how big a manufacturing challenge is that? And how do you map that out for your growth?
1: This year, we're going to do tens of thousands of hydro panels moving to low hundreds of thousands in 2024. So it's not at the point where we need to go build a bunch of factories. The way that a source hydro panel comes together, there's a lot of commodity elements that can be provided to us by sub-suppliers as a sub-assemblies that can be then integrated. And then there's a material science component that we've scaled well beyond 2025. So when we think about the constraint on scaling, we don't need to deploy a bunch of CapEx in the factory in order to to make it scale. As we move to millions of units per year, that really is about adding additional manufacturing capacity in country, in regions. So when we start thinking about the Indian market or um, Southeast Asian market, starting to deploy uh, regional factories is key to um, not only supporting the people that we're intending to serve, but also in terms of localizing supply chains and and making it really efficient.
0: You have a great deal of experience in transitioning from academic to to entrepreneurial, but also the idea of a humanitarian mission in a for-profit company. Are there a couple of pieces of general advice you would have given to founders looking to chart a similar type of path?
1: In Source, I see no tension between mission and money. Mm -hmm. In the sense that doing a deal with a high-end hotel in some exotic place is a high-margin deal, and then doing uh, a deal to serve an island nation in the South Pacific for the community there, both of those two serve the ultimate mission of cost performance compounding, right? Both of those have to happen in order to get to where we need to go. So I see the power of the positive feedback loop of all of the types of uh, places and people that we serve. So one piece of advice I would give is to build systems and culture around no tension between mission and money. The second piece of advice is really around ensuring that every shareholder on your cap table is values aligned and culturally aligned to what you are trying to do. Because if it's an important enough problem, it means it's a hard problem. That hard problem means that it's probably going to take more years and more money than you anticipate to actually get to the point where you're providing solutions at scale. Luckily for us, we've had great shareholders all the way along to get us to the point now where customer pull is taking us into the future in a way that's really exciting. Then I think third point of view of advice is around culture from the company building perspective and from the board and governance perspective. You'll hear many people say people are the most important asset. True. However, it is the organization's culture that determines whether or not those people can actually show up. And they may have been B players or C players in the former company they were in, and now they're an A player. Or they're an A player where they came from and they show up to, to work for your company and all of a sudden they're a B player. How do you build a culture that enables people to really deliver on their core abilities. So culture first, culture first, culture first. You've heard the phrase culture each strategy for lunch. No question about
0: that. Are there other technologies that folks are working on that are complementary with what you guys are doing to get more water to the world's population that faces shortages?
1: There's a lot of people working on lots of different ideas. Desalinization that invokes zero liquid discharge that is energy efficient and uh, cost effective, I think that's a big unlock for big swaths of the world. Getting to that zero liquid discharge removes one of the biggest environmental issues, which is the brine that comes out of the desal process. That's key. And we'll see a lot of solutions coming out of that coming years, I think. Then on the consumption side, ever more reuse technology, technologies that lower consumption, putting strategies that ensure landscaping is appropriate for the place that it's put in the ground. You know, agriculture that is water inefficient, starting to move away from those practices. At the home level, again, reuse, low flush toilets, showerheads that provide the, the same experience as uh, you know, high flow shower head, but yet are, are low flow. There's so much going on from an innovation perspective on all of those pieces. And it'll be an exciting next decade in, in the water space.
0: It's obviously all part of a much bigger puzzle. Thank you, Cody, for speaking at such length today. That's it for this episode of McKinsey on Startups. Thanks as always to our stellar podcast production team, Molly Carlin, Sid Romtree, Myron Shergan, and Polly Nella. And of course, thank you for listening. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback. So please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth.